Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. If you listen to The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable each week, you'll note that at least once we make, to, uh, make sure to say the name Bernie Sanders three times in a row. It's not to conjure him like Beetlejuice, but it's a bit of a hat tip to the many in our listening audience who continue to feel that the press has given his presidential campaign too little coverage. There's no denying that this has certainly changed as the months have gone by, as his rallies continue to draw huge crowds. And as his presence on the debate stage has forced presumed frontrunner Hillary Clinton into uncomfortable territory. It's also true that even though conventional wisdom has started to take hold with Clinton opening up large leads in several polls, some of those same polls have Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialist, beating nearly all the top Republican contenders in head-to-head matchups. Today, where we live, we're going to take a look at the influence Bernie Sanders has had on this presidential campaign and on the Democratic Party. We'll talk about whether his cries to break up the Wall Street banks and work toward economic equality will resonate with voters. And we'll try to figure out where he stands on some issues that don't highlight his stump speech, more troublesome issues like guns, race and foreign policy. You can join us in the wheelhouse, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to start with Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, who joins me each Wednesday. Welcome, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankosky. So what impact do you think Bernie Sanders uh, has had on Democratic politics this year? And what did you really think going in? I mean, did you expect Bernie Sanders to have the outsized influence that he has had? I, I think anybody who doesn't say that Bernie Sanders has outperformed expectations is probably lying. Um, and, and no, obviously, it, it it seemed, I mean, what has held true is that he was probably more of a stalking horse or John the Baptist kind of figure, somebody introducing a set of ideas that maybe somewhere down the line, somebody else will be, be able to campaign on more successfully. But, but I mean, he shed some of that Raymond at a certain point and, and became, you know, a freestanding, plausible or at least semi-plausible candidate. I think the more important thing is, OK, so Democratic nomination fights typically over the last, what, well, 30 years um, haven't really been, for the most part, ideological clashes. Um, the Republicans have started to have that more with the rise of the Tea Party uh, and, and and this, you know, pretty much blazing argument between something resembling a centrist Republican, although I don't even know what that is anymore, and Tea Partyists. So you, you see in a Republican nomination fight something that looks a lot like an ideological clash. You haven't really seen that really since the rise of the Democratic Leadership Council, which was sort of late 80s, um, and and really the embodiment of that kind of politics. The the DLC, just to remind people, uh, was a movement launched by people like the Clintons and Joe Lieberman and people like that who felt that the leftist politics uh, of the Democratic Party were no longer palatable and were no longer a path to success. Um, and, and that's sort of been the dominant model since, right? There are other kinds of voices in the, mid, in the mix, but, you know, Hillary Rodham Clinton and, and Barack Obama are both prominent symbols and, and uh, apostles 
uh, of that particular idea. And Bernie Sanders is really the first person to come along in a long time and in a real substantive, visible way, create an ideological clash. Say, wait a second. <laughs> this, this is not the only way the Democratic Party can function, and these are not the only set of ideas that the Democratic Party can articulate. So, I mean, that's the number one game changer. And the number two game changer that sits under this, and I think we're going to hear a lot from our guests about this, is just who he is, what his identity is. His identity is so... Uh, it runs so far against the grain of modern politicians that, you know, he doesn't have one problem to solve. He's got all kinds of problems to solve. And in a way, they kind of drowned each other out a little bit. I'm running just purely as a socialist would be a pretty complicated thing. Running as one of the first, once again, plausible Jewish seekers of the Democratic nomination uh, would also be a, a pretty complicated thing. Um, running as a secular humanist, which I'm, when I gather he is, would be a pretty complicated thing. <laughs> so, but he's got, in some ways, the, those three things, they're all so uh, unusual that they almost drowned each other out a little bit. And underlying this, and this is something I really want to hear from our guests about a lot today, I also think he might be one of the least handled significant presidential candidates in a long time. My sense of this guy is that that it's both his weakness and his strength that when he speaks, he's usually saying something that he's thought himself. He tends to write his own speeches. He tends to think up his own answers. He really doesn't appear to have anybody standing next to him and saying, what you really should say about that is this. He he says exactly what he wants to say. Now, that works for him really well at the level of authenticity. It doesn't work for him so well when there's a slightly better answer that still fits his politics that he's not finding. And as we go along today, maybe in some of the areas that, that I know you want to bring up, we can talk about you know, why, that, why the authenticity approach hasn't worked quite as well and how maybe he could have done better. Hey, and I think one other thing that I want to get from our guests today is really talking about how much of this impact has been about Bernie Sanders and how much of it has been about this post-Occupy Wall Street in the middle of a fight for $15 an hour, in the middle of a Black Lives Matter movement, whether or not America is searching for something slightly different than what it has had before. Whether or not Bernie Sanders embodies that, we'll, we'll find out. I want to bring in John Dillon and Bob Kinzel. John is the uh, news director at Vermont Public Radio. Bob Kinzel, senior reporter at Vermont Public Radio. They have a great documentary called Becoming Bernie, which is airing this Sunday night at 7 o'clock on WNPR. They join us from the VPR studios today. John and Bob, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning. Hey, it's great to be here. First of all, I'll just ask you to maybe respond a little bit to what Colin said off the top and, and talk about how surprised you both are at Bernie Sanders and his influence in America right now. You've both covered him for quite some time. He's an unusual character. Give us a little bit of uh, insight from, from Vermont. Well, I think Colin is exactly right. When Bernie had his kickoff in late May in Burlington, if you told people then that Bernie might at some point during the late summer and early fall be leading in Iowa and leading in New Hampshire, everybody would have thought you were crazy. Uh, but it really seemed to be a case where, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders message has not changed in Vermont over the last 30 years. He's been talking about income inequality and the danger of money in politics for his entire political career. So it really seemed this summer that issues had caught up to Bernie Sanders, that all of a sudden this message was starting to resonate around the country. And it was fascinating to watch him campaign all summer long and start off with a 1,000 people in this location and 2,000 people there. And then he hit the West Coast in late summer, and there were 25,000 people listening to him in Los Angeles. And I think it just surprised all of us that just didn't see this coming. 
I think in in Vermont he was sort of viewed as a, a as sort of a creature of of only in Vermont. You know, only in Vermont would an, an independent politician identified as who self-identifies as a democratic socialist get elected first as um, a mayor of the state's largest city and then uh, as a house member and then to the u.s senate you know we have um sort of a quirky independent electorate here and 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 i i thought man is this gonna play out in the country and and as bob said I was, I'm, I'm surprised that it's resonated so effectively, but I think it is true that his message hasn't changed. And, and Colin talked about his lack of handling, and, and that's that's very accurate. I mean, I don't, I don't think Bernie has um, message makers or, or handlers or PR consultants. Uh, he 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 is his own machine that way. Um, to for better or worse you know sometimes his his single focus is very effective sometimes as i think we've seen in the debates he doesn't have the backup lines he doesn't have he hasn't been maybe um practiced enough for all of the questions that will come his way because you know he's 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 uh he's he's got this single focus on income inequality and, and so look, yeah and i actually wanted to hear a little bit from from saturday night's debate and of course this debate taking place on cbs it was done with some modifications it took place about one full day after the terrible attacks on Paris. And CBS was going to be focusing on some other issues. And they said, well, obviously, we're going to shift our focus a little bit. And when Bernie Sanders was first asked a question, it was really about the attacks in Paris and then also why he's running for president. Let's just listen to a little bit of that answer. Well, John, let me concur with you and with all Americans who are shocked and disgusted by what we saw in Paris yesterday. Together, leading the world this country will rid our planet of this barbarous organization called ISIS. I'm running for president because as I go around this nation, I talk to a lot of people. And what I hear is people's concern that the economy we have is a rigged economy. And, and Bob Kinzel, that pivot, that very, very quick pivot back to what is essentially his stump speech, struck an awful lot of people around the country as feeling a little bit like he wasn't really taking the mood of the entire nation and really the entire world. We're all focused on Paris. We're focused on international terrorism. And he, after about 20 seconds, is going to go right back to what he always talks about. And and that was a real liability for him, John. I think it showed he was a little bit tone deaf that evening. And as John mentioned, the fact that he doesn't have handlers, uh, I think it was pretty clear that his campaign didn't want to spend a lot of time talking about the attacks in Paris. And this is the shortcomings of the Bernie Sanders campaign, that he doesn't have people around him who can point these things out to him. He's really making decisions on his own. So that was a perfect example of how it doesn't work out for him sometimes. Uh, you know, and, and I think the other thing that you might want to that I might want to build on in saying that is he doesn't have those people after he's done something like that. So uh, a day or so later, I don't even know exactly when this uh, took place, but he did an interview with Katie Couric uh, uh, on Yahoo where uh, she basically asked him the same question. And he did almost exactly the same thing. In fact, he did it at greater length. Uh, he uh, She asked him a question about ISIS, part of a series of questions about ISIS. But he gave this long answer where he just veered off into his laundry list uh, of economic grievances so that, you know, the question began with ISIS. It actually ended with um, a 
absurdly high copayments and deductibles, which is not usually something that comes up in connection with ISIS. And, and you know, it, it, in an ordinary campaign, somebody would have said to him after Saturday night, all right, you're going to have to do a little bit better. I mean, in fact, you're going to have to do a lot better. Uh, and, and you can't make it seem like you regard the Paris attacks as kind of some kind of wag le chien, you know, distraction from your domestic economic issues. You know, this is actually a very important thing, and it's front and center right now. And you can't keep complaining about the fact that there's that you you don't want the focus to drift away from what you care about. Because also part of being president, obviously, is shifting your focus instantly. Uh, that what is incredibly important on Tuesday may take, be on the back burner uh, by Wednesday because other things push themselves to the fore. And, and nothing could be more clear than the fact that this has. And, I, I you know, it's one thing to make a mistake on Saturday night. It's another thing not to learn from that mistake. And, and it's one of the things that kind of makes him more of a boutique candidate than a mainstream candidate. John Dillon, do we know much about what Bernie Sanders thinks about how he deal with international terrorism, what he really believes about foreign policy, and how much do the voters of Vermont, for instance, understand about how he stands on those issues? What he always refers to when asked about foreign policy and and military intervention is his early votes in Congress as um, first as a House member against the the Gulf War, later on against the 2003 war. And he says, you know, I may not be a foreign policy expert, but at least I had the forethought to to know that this these were, were unfortunate wars to get involved in. And um, that's his counter to Hillary Clinton's I'm the I've been the, I've been secretary of state. I've been in the situation room. And he says, well, I've been not been there, but I've, I've cast meaningful votes uh, that that you were mistaken on, that and that's what he tells voters here, you know. He but clearly he doesn't have the experience that she does. I mean, when he was mayor of Burlington, he he kind of had a foreign policy in a way. He went to Nicaragua, one of the few mayors of probably the only mayor of the United States to do so. Um, he, his his administration were was dubbed the Sanderistas. Um, because he supported that regime down there and because he was a lefty. But he, he's always been against interventionist policies by the U.S. government overseas, and that, I think, is the foundation of, of his foreign policy experience that Vermonters have seen. Plus, he bases his 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 work on these issues around the veterans. He's a strong advocate of veterans. He, co-chair, he chaired the Veterans Affairs Committee as a senator, and um, and he's always said that we shouldn't He's kind of got the veteran's view of foreign policy that we shouldn't go into wars unless we're prepared to take care of the people who are injured in their families. You know, I, I just uh, one um, strength that he has that, again, his strength and his weakness can be the same thing. So uh, in the language of Myers-Briggs, you know, Sanders seems more like a sensor than an intuitive. He's a guy who he sees things in pretty stark terms. He sees what's in front of him in stark terms. Something is unfair. It's unfair. Something's wrong. It's wrong. If something is better, it's better. Um, he's very different from Hillary Clinton that way. Who She tends to explain things in a pretty finely grained way. She knows a lot of details. Now, this actually comes constitutes an advantage in politics, what he has, because most people don't know a lot. And 65% probably of people are what are called censors. They see things. They're not intuitives. They don't look for multiple meanings in things. So this works in his behalf most of the time. He talks and thinks the way a lot of people talk and think in very bold, stark terms. Um, what 
I think militates against that is sometimes there is a better answer. I was watching him in the Couric interview, and it's the answer is almost at his fingertips. He just doesn't think that way. She's asking him about refugees. And the answer that he really, I think, needs to give, he gives an okay answer, but the answer that he really needs to give is, look, there's two great things about refugees. One of them is if you debrief 65,000 refugees, you get a lot of human intelligence out of that. You know, if you're really worried about people coming into the country, debrief 65,000 refugees because they're going to tell you a lot about who's coming into the country. They want to get into the country and they'll tell you what they know. So there's a tremendous gain that you get out of something like that. And then the other thing is, and this is the thing that I think is close to where Sanders is, but he doesn't have an aide telling him to say it, is, look, we're fighting a public opinion war to a certain degree right now. And, and you know, say there's 30,000 fighters in ISIS. First of all, they're going to lose a lot of people. The world powers are sharing intelligence right now. France is bombing the heck out of them. They're a lot of them are going to die. They're going to need to replace them. So where do they go to, the repla- to replace them? Into the, into the Muslim world. Well, what if we're the good guys, you know? What if, we're the, what if we're the hearts and minds people? What if every possible demonstration that we can make as a nation and as a coalition of free nations indicates we're here to help you, we're here to save you, we want to take refugees, we want to be the good guys? It's harder to recruit in that situation. And, and that's, you know, ISIS is going to be fighting a numbers game pretty quickly. They're going to lose people faster than they can replace them, unless we act like jerks, in which case they'll be able to replace their numbers faster. And, and that's a great Bernie answer, but I can't see him quite getting to that. And, and I think it's partly because he's, he is. He's undercoached. Well, and maybe undercoached, but Bob Kinzel, before we take our break, it, to a certain extent, here's a guy who has been, as you've said, very consistent on a number of things over a very long political career. He's an older guy, and maybe there's just a sense that, you know, sometimes old dogs don't learn new tricks. I mean, he's not necessarily the guy who's going to all of a sudden bone up on certain foreign policy uh, issues. He's not going to have a nuanced answer when a big, heavy club of an answer might be the thing that's right, of, uh, right at his fingertips. I mean, do you think, Bob, that he can he can learn to do this? Absolutely. And I think that foreign policy is a liability and an asset for him. I mean, my question would be, for the Democratic primary voters, what position do they support? Do they support Hillary Clinton, who I think would have a much more aggressive policy towards uh, intervening in Syria? Or would they support Bernie Sanders, who says the last thing in the world we want to do is send American troops over to Syria? Uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to play out. Now, in a general election, probably the Hillary Clinton viewpoint would prevail. But I really wonder in a Democratic primary if that's going to be the case at all. all. And it'll be fascinating to see in the early primaries if Sanders' position on this, the idea that there has to be a regional solution here, that we're not going to send American troops over there, and to try to negate uh, Clinton's vast experience as Secretary of State, whether or not that will actually turn out to be a winning argument in these primaries. Bob Kinzel, senior reporter at Vermont Public Radio. John Dillon's the news director there. They have a brand-new documentary called Becoming Bernie. It's airing on Sunday night at 7 o'clock on WNPR. We're talking with them about the career and the life of Bernie Sanders. Colin McEnroe, of course, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show, joins us. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of the other issues that Bernie Sanders has been having some trouble with, guns and race. You want to join us, 860-275-7266, or you can tweet us at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's a Wednesday wheelhouse, but a special wheelhouse, a Bernie Sanders edition of the program with Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, and also John Dillon and Bob Kinzel. They're both from Vermont Public Radio. They've got a great documentary called Becoming Bernie that traces his entire life story and also his political career, this unlikely run at the presidency. We're taking some of your phone calls in a bit at 860-275-7266. I want to bring in our friend Leah wright Rigor, who is an assistant professor of public policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Her most recent book is The Loneliness of the Black Republican, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power. She joins us by phone. Leah, welcome back to the show. Ah, thanks for having me, John. (laughs) So because of your recent book, you've been asked a lot by national media about Ben Carson's campaign. But what have you made of Bernie Sanders' campaign? So, you know, it's funny. In an era where Donald Trump and Ben Carson are the front runners for the Republican Party in the the primary, um, a Bernie Sanders campaign doesn't feel that out of sorts. It actually feels natural and it it feels kind of right, given what's going on on the right. Um... You know, I think all of these people are casting themselves as outsiders. Um, they're seen as kind of outside of the establishment, of critiquing the establishment. And I think they're tapping into something, a deep vein that exists within the country. In Sanders' case, it's a real kind of frustration, I think, with continuing equality, with economics, with poverty. And I think um, Colin mentioned earlier, or John, you may have mentioned, that part of this, part of what's going on here is kind of the remnants of the Occupy Wall Street protests from 2011. And I think Bernie really speaks to that audience, which is, you know, asserting themselves in very loud and clear voices. But, but I think, as I also mentioned before, too, you know, Occupy Wall Street was a few years ago. That's it's not old news. It certainly has an impact, but it's not the thing that we're talking about today. The thing we're talking about today is Black Lives Matter. And, and here's uh, Bernie Sanders addressing the issue of race in the CNN debate that happened last month. We need to combat institutional racism from top to bottom. And we need major, major reforms in a broken criminal justice system. So, Leah, Bernie Sanders has had rallies interrupted by protesters from the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of people who watch his campaign closely have said he's been a little tone deaf on some of these issues, including continually really referencing things like the criminal justice system as really the only way to get into the issue of race in America. What is it you've seen? So I think that's that's right on the money. I think there were, you know, when he was, his protests were interrupted on two different occasions over the summer, there was a lot of a confusion. There was a lot. There were a lot of people saying, you know, this is not, you know, Bernie Sanders is on their side. Why would they interrupt his campaign? But the point is that his campaign has really been kind of um, blind in a number of ways to racial issues. And so one of the things I think that uh, Black Lives Matters protesters were doing were drawing attention to somebody who's actually going to act on these things, or at least try and act on these things. So he did a number of things after the protesters interrupted um, his stumping uh, moment, uh, momentum. He went out and he appointed various people, various uh, racial minorities, to positions of power within his campaign, right, including his press secretary, one of his press secretaries. So I think he's trying to tap into at least or at least um, respond to some of these frustrations. And that's why um, a lot of the Black Lives Matter activists actually went after Bernie Sanders, because there's the understanding that he, of all people, is probably going to do something about it. I, I want to hear from uh, from John Dillon and Bob Kinzel about this. In, in your documentary, you you trace back his early years when he was living in Chicago. You know, desegregation, racial equality were both some of the the important issues to him. And as a matter of fact, really got him going on 
the path that he led. How do you view this issue of Bernie Sanders and race? Well, that's right. In Chicago, where he was a student in the 60s, he he became involved in the civil rights movement. And he he talks about that as sort of trying to establish his cred on this issue. And he talks about uh, joining the March on Washington back then. And it it really did form his entry into uh activism that that he led he led or was part of a group that sat in at the University of Chicago's president's office because the school then had segregated housing. Uh, I talked to an old friend of his who was a community organizer. This was for the documentary who um, was, you know, knew Sanders back then and, and talked about his commitment to those issues. But for now, that's just not enough. Um, for the Black Lives Matter movement or, or or for, I think, African-Americans. You can't just say, you know, I was part of this movement back then. So as Leah mentioned, he's he's made these changes to his campaign. I, I think the backdrop that one has to think about is, is where he's coming from. You know, Vermont, he never had to confront these issues in Vermont, really. It's a, it's a very white state. Um, it's only now becoming more diverse. Bernie never really had to confront race as the mayor of Burlington. Um, he was criticized by by African-American leaders this summer in Vermont for being somewhat tone deaf through the years when he was in Congress. Um, a, a local high school had a Confederate mascot. They had reached out to him to say something about it, and I guess he didn't respond to their satisfaction. So he, he's, he's, he's both not had to address this and then had to try and, and pivot uh, based on events this summer. Uh, Colin, I, and I don't know if, if you feel like, I mean, th- this notion that he comes from a 95% white state, we're going to talk in just a moment about the fact that he comes from a state that have a lot of guns, and maybe that's another blind spot uh, potentially for Bernie Sanders. Do, when you listen to him try to talk about race, given all of the conversations about race in America right now, Colin, what do you hear? Well, yeah. So first of all, I mean, I agree with everything that everybody said so far. And I mean, you know, obviously the the standing joke that everybody's using about Bernie Sanders is some version of, you know, 50 percent of black voters in Vermont say he's doing better on race and they couldn't reach the other guy. Uh, and, and, and so, yes, I mean, I think what was just said is important that he he didn't learn uh, the modern voca- vocabulary for talking about race. However, <laughs> that's not really exactly um, a viable excuse anymore. And I think what goes along with this, and I'm about to say something wildly ageist, which I, I think I can say it because I'm the oldest person on the show, but uh, is, you know, information and opinion move really fast these days. I mean, not only does nobody care about your bona fides based on your participation in the civil rights movement in the 60s, nobody cares what you did last year. Um, You know, and this is true in the Black Lives Matter movement, and it's true in lots of other places, too. And I think that's something that he struggles with. His his mind, his perceptions, his understanding of the world moves a little bit slower than the pace of information in in the digital age. You really have to learn your new tricks every day, not every week, not every month, not every year. And and so, in, in a way, his an inability to find the vocabulary 
by which race is talked about today. You know, Marlon James, uh, the novelist, did a, a posting recently just saying that and it sounds like a critique of Bernie. He basically says that that a lot of white liberals maxed out on black progress. He said they just sort of thought, well, that's it. I've done all I'm going to be able to do. So that's, you know. That's enough, and I really don't ask me for anything else. Uh, and, and and there's a little bit in there, you know. I mean, he doesn't ever say that. He wouldn't be dumb enough to say that. But I think the way that he's being read is that way a little bit and has a little something to do with his age. Uh, let's go to Bonita, who's calling from New Haven. Hi, Bonita. You're on Where We Live. Oh, hi, John. Um, yeah, um, I, I understand what everyone's saying regarding um, Bernie and um race relations and his age and all of that. But I do believe that he has good ideas. I am African-American, and I really like what he has to say. I understand um, that he's an older person that goes back to Martin Luther King and all of that. But his platform, a lot of his platform that has to do with the social justice that has to do with the economic inequality. Those are things that African Americans can buy into. A lot of what is keeping him away from African Americans doesn't really have to do with him. A lot of it has to do with the fact that he really hasn't gotten a, a, a lot of people don't know about him in the black community. Mm. And I do believe that when I speak to people in my community and I tell them the things that he believes in, they can get behind that. And thank you for your phone call, as always, and I appreciate uh, your call today. I want to turn that to, to Leah. I mean, does that sound about right to you, Leah? I mean, somebody who's talking about $15 an hour as a, as a minimum wage, somebody who's talking about writing some of the uh, social inequities of America, is that something that's going to resonate with the right message to black voters? So, so absolutely. I mean, um, we've been talking about Black Lives Matters, and, and one of the newest kind of funds is, is supporting workers' rights across the country, right? And so a lot of these, for example, the fast, fast food worker strikes and things like that. Um, the interesting thing, the caller, I think, was right on the, you know, right on the money when, when she mentioned that part of the problem is overcoming perception and overcoming, you know, people not knowing about him. And poll after poll has shown that African-Americans, one, don't prefer Bernie Sanders, but that's largely due to the fact that they don't know who he is. I mean, so right after, you know, those kind of low poll numbers, there's also this kind of big, huge gulf in terms of who is this guy. For many people, they've never even heard of him before. So the other thing that Sanders kind of has has to overcome when it comes to black voters is also kind of the Clinton effect, right? Because black voters going into this know who Hillary Clinton is. They've known who she is for over 20 years. They know who her husband is. They know that she's been secretary of state. They know that she's been a a senator. I mean, they know the Clintons in a way that they do not know Bernie Sanders. And that's that's absolutely working to his disadvantage, right? So you have that recent rally um, where African-Americans for Hillary Clinton. And, yes, it was broken up um, by uh, Black Lives Matter. But then you had a whole host of activists, very prominent African-Americans and black politicians, uh, celebrities, people on the ground, church groups saying, uh, uh, endorsing Hillary in really profound ways. And we don't see the same for Bernie Sanders. 
And that ha- definitely has an effect on his you know, favorability and support within black communities. Now, w- many of the voters who may be drawn to Sanders are the same ones who may disagree with him on the issue of guns. Last month in the CNN debate, he responded to former Maryland Gover- Governor Martin O'Malley uh, on the issue of gun control. We can raise our voices, but I come from a rural state. And the views on gun control in rural states are different than in urban states, whether we like it or not. So, Bob Kinzel, this is a this is a big one for a lot of people on the national stage. As Lee is just suggesting, many people don't know about Bernie Sanders. They may think after they listen to his talk about social inequities that he may have a certain type of record on gun control. And it turns out that he really doesn't. Talk talk this through for us. Well, you know, Vermont is a state that has virtually no gun control legislation. I think of all 50 states, we have the fewest restrictions. For instance, you can walk down the streets of Montpelier with a concealed weapon. Nobody minds. Uh, You know, the only places you can't take a gun in Vermont would be into a state or federal building or into a school. So he does represent the state of Vermont when it comes to gun control. Now, he did vote against the Brady Bill five times. He said he voted against it because he thought the five-day waiting period in that bill was too long. He wanted something more instant, but the technology didn't exist at that time to do that. And so he now supports background checks. He wants to close the gun show loophole. Uh, But he does represent the state of Vermont. And I would also point out that Senator Patrick Leahy, uh, who is viewed as one of the most liberal members of the United States Senate, also voted against the Brady Bill. And so they felt that there had to be a national solution, but they also had to have a solution that would work for the state of Vermont. And they found in that case it did not. Now, I think Hillary Clinton has done a really good job exploiting this issue, particularly in the debates. It seemed like in that first debate, Sanders didn't realize the question was coming. And he had to have known it was coming. But that might be a case, as we discussed previously, where he doesn't have a lot of handlers and they didn't walk through his answer on this particular issue. You know, once again, yeah, I think we're talking about a product of Vermont again. So uh, just the way we were when we were talking about Black Lives Matter. And so, yeah, in in Vermont, there may be more rules in Vermont about uh, letting your car idle outside a store than there are about guns. Uh, I was in Montpelier a couple of weeks ago. I had no idea how many of you guys were packing up there. I thought it was all <laughs> artisanal, Don't worry. artisanal pizza. But, but in, in a way, Vermont is, you know, it's a bad laboratory for thinking about guns because, in fact, there's maybe a lot of gun ownership. There may not be very many gun laws, but there also aren't, aren't that many gun problems either. You know, and, and it's, if you want to run for president of the United States, you can't think about it exclusively in Vermont terms because, yeah, I think he can probably say, look, we don't have a lot of laws in Vermont and, you know, everything works out pretty good. <laughs> well, it's not working. <laughs> out so well in lots of other places. And so you have to articulate a national strategy, and that's where he's not doing it. And I think, Leah, one of those issues that keeps coming up in many, many states where we've had uh, issues with guns and we've had uh, tighter gun control legislation passed in just the last couple of years since the terrible shootings at, at Newtown is that, you know, uh, governors like our own governors say, Uh, Guns are bought in places like Vermont or Virginia or other southern states, and they make their way to the cities of America. And that's where it really becomes yet another issue for urban voters. Those guns really take hold in the streets, uh, a place that, you know, Bernie Sanders does not represent and he hasn't really found a way to talk about too well. Right. And I think that that he he there is hasn't found a way to really talk about it as well. You know, I'm glad you played that clip from the debate. Because that was one of the things that Hillary Clinton really seized on, right, and saying, you know, he's drawing a distinction between rural and urban. What does he mean by that? Part of what he means by that, right, that she says, is that 
he can't speak to you. He has an idea of what urban means. And it's really, you know, she's really arguing, pushing for a racialized interpretation of urban and arguing that Bernie, you know, Bernie Sanders is doing this in a way where he can't understand what's going on in the cities. And the truth is, um, amongst black voters and Latino voters in various, um, in various urban populations and um, uh, urban centers, crime and criminality and gun control is a major, major issue, right? It's right up there with economics, with jobs, with job training, with unemployment and underemployment. Uh, Leah Wright Rigur is an assistant professor of public policy at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Her most recent book is The Loneliness of the Black Republican, um, Pragmatic Politics and the Pursuit of Power. Leah, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to watching the documentary or listening to the documentary. Yeah, the, the documentary Becoming Bernie is on Sunday night at 7 o'clock on WNPR. We're still joined by John Dillon and Bob Kinzel from Vermont Public Radio. I, I want to actually promote to Colin's show this afternoon as a last thing with you guys. And your show this afternoon, Colin, is about socialism. Yeah, I, we sort of planned this, kind of. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I got interested in this a, a while ago. I mean, partly after the first debate where uh, Sanders was talking about socialism and mentioned Denmark and people were kind of ridiculing him. But so socialism is, in fact, a, a word in some ways without a definition. Uh, it, it, it's a word that people use in different ways. And obviously, Bernie Sanders talks about democratic socialism, which is sort of not unistatist uh, socialism, but socialism that people vote for. Uh, and um, so I, on the show today, anyway, we're, we're going to explore the meanings of this. We'll talk a little bit also about whether Bernie Sanders really can own up to, live up to uh, what most people's, what most socialists' definition of socialism would be. Well, and in your documentary, John Dillon, you, you have people from uh, the Socialist Party talking about this and whether or not uh, Bernie Sanders is, I suppose, a true socialist in the way that many people uh, believe that word, uh, what they believe that word means. I think an important part here it just came out of what Colin said is there are socialists that you might vote for, and then there's socialists that don't really cause any sort of a ripple. Bernie Sanders, at a certain point, John, decided to be the type of socialist who is going to get votes and win statewide elections. That's right. He His his uh, hero, political hero, as as he came up, uh, you know, grew up and and was in college and so forth, was Eugene Debs, Eugene V. Debs, who who ran for president as a socialist in the early 1900s, and he had a portrait of Debs on his wall when he was mayor of Burlington. In in our report, there was uh, the uh, the. The person representing sort of the establishment socialist view, if there is such a thing, criticized Sanders for not being the Debs style socialist. He's not your strict, you know, socialist believe uh, in 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 owning means of production, for example. Sanders doesn't want to nationalize industry. He wants social programs, as in Scandinavia. He 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 doesn't. He's not a, a doctrinaire socialist. He he kind of he when he became mayor of Burlington it was really unusual you know self identified socialist wins um, in a state's largest city we were just starting to go from red to blue as a state but it was still considered a Republican state and 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 he wins he beats a a Democratic incumbent and and so the, the press all over the world was curious about this and and people defined Sanders as sort of socialist light you know he. He's he's uh, a socialist who wants to use the electoral process. He wants to expand Social Security. He he likes Medicare for all. He likes those sort of social programs, but he's not a capital S socialist. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, we have a little a bit of audio uh, that you have in your documentary that was actually from a documentary Bernie Sanders put together about Eugene Debs. Here, here he's voicing the parts of Eugene Debs himself. Why should working people support the Socialist Party? Because it is the only party unequivocally committed to their economic interests, to the abolition of the wage system, and the freedom of the worker from exploitation and every other species of servitude. I just have to say, Bob, because listening to that, you know, we're so used to hearing clips from people's past political lives played during presidential uh, races, and sometimes they say things that they later have to apologize for. I don't know that I've ever heard someone who's actually leading in some national polls uh, saying the words of Eugene Debs in such a forceful way as Bernie Sanders was just there. Exactly, John. And I think, you know, what Bernie Sanders is saying is, and he's going to outline this in a speech tomorrow afternoon at Georgetown University. It's a speech that he's been planning for a couple of weeks. And I think they feel now they have to have uh, this address because the idea of being a socialist, even a democratic socialist, is starting to take on a negative connotation. But in any case, Bernie's going to say, listen, Government has certain responsibilities. People, everybody, have a, has a right to health care. Uh, everybody deserves to have a living wage. There should be paid sick leave. And as John mentioned, it's not a matter of the federal government taking over factories. It's not a matter of the federal government taking over banks. Bernie Sanders isn't going to go that far. But he is going to talk about the human condition and what the responsibilities of government should be. And I think he's hoping that, particularly on the issue of health care, it's been fascinating in the last week since the debate that Hillary Clinton is uh, criticizing Sanders' call for Medicare for all, saying it's going to be a huge tax increase on middle-class Americans. And he's coming back and saying, yes, but we have to have health care for everybody. Otherwise, we're going to bankrupt this system. So it's really highlighting some very key issues between Clinton and Sanders. And it's also, Colin, maybe the debate that needed to be had more forcefully on the floor of the Senate and the House uh, over the Affordable Care Act. At the end of the day, there were lots of voices like Bernie Sanders talking about that, but it didn't uh, they didn't rise to the level that perhaps he's able to right now, having a conversation about whether or not health care is a right that everyone should have, as opposed to just something that, you know, gives Aetna another couple of people, <laughs> uh, people who are customers. Well, yeah. And, and so here, Bernie Sanders' argument that the game is rigged uh, is not only plausible, it's absolutely true. Uh, so the game was rigged in such a way that, that that conversation couldn't be had meaningfully. We couldn't have a conversation about a single payer system. We couldn't even have a conversation about the public option, which is obviously different, but allows, in fact, some kind of public program to compete with private programs. Uh, we couldn't even do that. But I mean, I think you know, John John and Bob's points about him uh, and, and socialism are echoed in a piece, I think it ran last week in New York Magazine by Jonathan Chait. Uh, there's, there's a way in which really Bernie Sanders is kind of a left-wing Democrat rather than a socialist, that he's sort of a Paul Wellstone uh, Democrat. And, and he could easily wear that mantle and wear it persuasively. He's chosen a different word, and there's no way he can walk away from it now. And so he has to give this foundational, or he wants to give this foundational speech uh, in a day or so that's going to be... You know, like JFK on Catholicism or Barack Obama when he really sort of had to talk about, you know, what it meant to him to be an African-American candidate. Bernie Sanders will give this speech. And and it'll be really interesting to see how that's processed. I'll, I'll just quickly add that in a Pew study that I think that was done in 2011, unsurprisingly, the younger you are, the less bothered you are by the S word. Uh, you know, it, it just doesn't have, I mean, Medicare was attacked as socialized medicine. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, you, you just haven't been part of any of those debates. 
Um, and, and and so it's not surprisingly surprising that Bernie resonates with young voters and that they aren't turned off by that particular label. Uh, John and Bob, we just have a minute left, but I'll, I'll ask you to maybe take out the crystal ball a little bit. What happens with Bernie Sanders? I mean, we can't imagine he actually beats Hillary Clinton in these primaries, but I don't know. Maybe he does. What happens? Well, Iowa and New Hampshire are going to be the key here for the Sanders campaign. Can Bernie Sanders win in Iowa? Uh, I think that there is a roadmap for victory there. It may be somewhat unlikely. I think it'll be interesting to see how foreign policy influences this uh, election in the next two months, whether or not voters in Iowa and New Hampshire feel that it's a mistake for the United States to take a very active role and send troops into Syria, and whether or not Sanders can get his message of income inequality across to all these folks. Uh, It could be a close race, at least in the first two states. John? And I would just say that South Carolina is going to be the test, really, of him against Clinton uh, with um, African-Americans. John Dillon, News Director at Vermont Public Radio. Bob Kinzel, Senior Reporter at Vermont Public Radio. Their documentary, Becoming Bernie, is going to air this Sunday night at 7 on WNPR. Thank you so much for all of your insight. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. When we come back, Colin McEnany and Roe and I will consider one last issue uh, that we haven't yet talked about, campaign finance reform, something that Bernie Sanders has talked a lot about, and it's a big issue right now in Connecticut, where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. I'm here in the wheelhouse with Colin McEnroe, and today on the program we considered the career of Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont who's running for the Democratic presidential nomination on a Democratic socialist platform. One of the issues he's talking about is the impact of money on politics, especially the big Wall Street money that's behind the campaign of Hillary Clinton. Why do, uh, why over her political career has Wall Street been a major, the major uh, campaign contributor to Hillary Clinton? Uh, now, maybe they're dumb and they don't know what they're going to get, but I don't think so. Of course, the issue of campaign finance reform and how much companies get for big contributions at the federal level is essentially a dead issue now. The Supreme Court Citizens United ruling opened the doors for billions to flow into campaigns. But at the state level, some states like Connecticut have taken steps to clean up elections through publicly financed campaigns and limits on influence from donors. But as we've talked about a lot on the wheelhouse, those post-Roland era reforms have been weakened over the years, skirted around during the last election for governor, and now may be completely thrown out because of a need to find money to close the gap in the state budget. Colin McEnroe, there's a lot uh, right now that's all seemingly converging around these issues, including the possibility that state Democrats want to throw out this you know, campaign election reforms altogether. Yeah. When I first uh, heard that or read that, I kind of gasped because obviously something like this, uh, an overhaul of the way campaigns are paid for in Connecticut, it's, it's a pretty huge commitment, you know, and, and it is a commitment. Uh, and and I, one would think it would be permanently in place. But I mean, thinking about it a little bit more, I mean, first of all, the budget-making process in Connecticut has turned into sort of a philosopher's thought experiment. You know, you can pick whichever one you want, but the the boat is sinking, and you have to decide who you're going to throw over the side um, <laughs> to keep the boat upright. And if it comes down to some of the more vulnerable populations and this system, which in my opinion doesn't work right now, at least not at the gubernatorial level, if you've got $19 million of dark money flowing in uh, and you've got the Democrats trying to work their own state party process in order to up the contribution limits— uh, and and work federal accounts into state elections. It's it's a broken system. This is something about which I differ 
from Common Cause, an organization with whom I usually share sympathies. I see them in kind of a shoot the wounded and declare victory mode right now saying, well, we've got this great system. Why would we ever get rid of it? Well, it's not a great system. We're not getting the clean elections that we're paying a lot of money for. So if that's what they want to do, (laughs) it's hard to argue. You know, if you're talking about families with autistic children, if you're talking about people, single mothers who desperately need uh, medical care, if you're talking about um, aged and infirmed people, it's hard to argue that this thing, which in my opinion is hopelessly tainted and compromised, is worth hurting them for. Well, the Republicans that I had on yesterday, the the House and Senate leadership, they said their plan is to essentially cut some money out of this clean elections program, but leave it intact, saying we spend too much money on it. The Democrats are saying, let's just suspend it for a year and then maybe see what happens afterward. I don't think anybody can imagine that our fiscal uh, ship is going to get so much more upright that it would come back after that. Well, obviously, what what all Americans want are shorter election cycles that cost less money. You look at Canada and you think, wow, they do that pretty fast and they don't spend a lot of money. But the truth is, there's no, I, I don't know how you cut the grants exactly and solve the problem. The more you cut the grant, the more private money becomes important. I haven't really thought about this very carefully, but it seems to me that that in some ways you'd be better off pulling the plug and seeing what that looks like. And, and you know, if they want to suspend it for a year, I, I don't. I, I think that's defensible at this point. If the system were working better, I'd be up in arms screaming about it. But I don't think it works right now. And, and maybe a year off would give, would be some time to to think a little bit more about whether there's any way to patch this program up. Uh, Colin McEnroe hosts the Colin McEnroe Show at 1 o'clock here on WNPR. This afternoon, he's going to be talking about socialism. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. Uh, I also want to thank the good folks from Vermont Public Radio. Tucker Ives produced our program. Lydia Brown, Betsy Kaplan, Josh Nalea all helped out along with our technical producer, Kyone Wolf. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Solarski. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us in the wheelhouse here on Where We Live. Where We Live.